0: This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Yair Lapid, Israel's prime minister, conceded defeat in parliamentary elections to Benjamin Netanyahu, clearing the way for Mr. Netanyahu to reclaim his old job. Mr. Netanyahu's religious and right-wing coalition appears to have won 64 of 120 seats in Parliament. Mr. Lapid's bloc took 51. An unaffiliated Arab party claimed the rest. To form a government, Mr. Netanyahu will need the support of Itamir Ben-Gvir's far-right religious party, which until recently was a political pariah. G7 foreign ministers gathered in Germany to discuss aid plans to help Ukraine get through winter amid Russian attacks on its energy infrastructure. Strikes cut off the Zaporizhia nuclear plant from the national grid on Thursday. Meanwhile, reports emerged that Russia was undergoing a retreat from Kherson to the east bank of the Dnieper River. Ukrainian officials say the rumored withdrawal could be a trap. The Bank of England raised interest rates by 0.75 percentage points to 3%, the largest increase for over 30 years, as it battles to tackle soaring inflation. It was the eighth consecutive rise. The bank warned that the country faces a lengthy recession, but suggested that rates would not have to rise as high as the 5.25% figure expected by investors. Imran Khan, Pakistan's former prime minister, was reportedly shot in the lower leg while leading a rally in Wazirabad, in the east of the country, in what his supporters describe as an assassination attempt. Mr. Khan is calling for snap elections following his ousting from power in April. Local media reports that he fled the scene and is now out of danger. Unipair. A German gas importer the government intends to nationalize announced a net loss of over 40 billion euro, 39.3 billion dollars, in the first nine months of 2022, one of the largest losses in German corporate history. Disruption of Russian gas deliveries caused by the invasion of Ukraine forced the company to seek more expensive supplies elsewhere. Germany's government announced a 29 billion $28.3 billion bailout of Uniper in September. Iran's security forces fired on crowds in the city of Karaj, gathered to mark the end of the 40-day mourning period for Hadis Najafi, a 22-year-old protester killed in September, witnesses told the BBC. Police created roadblocks to prohibit people visiting her grave reacting violently when thousands tried to reach the cemetery regardless. Najafi has become a symbol of the female-led protests sweeping across Iran. Amazon paused corporate hiring for at least several months. A memo to staff blamed the freeze on uncertain economic conditions and the e-retailer's hiring spree during the pandemic. Separately, Lyft, a ride-hailing firm, said it would cut 13% of its staff or roughly 700 jobs. The announcements come as big and not-so-big tech companies are experiencing sharp corrections. And fact of the day, $255 billion, the combined value of exports and imports between China and Germany last year, five times the figure in 2005. And now here's a deeper look at the day ahead. America's job market comes off the boil. After a sizzling run, the labor market in America may finally be cooling down. Figures due out on Friday are expected to show that the economy added about 190,000 jobs in October, the fewest since the end of 2020. That would be the third straight monthly decline in job creation a trend that may intensify, as higher interest rates weigh on business activity. On November 2nd, the Federal Reserve delivered yet another jumbo rate rise. President Joe Biden and the Democrats would prefer to see a stronger jobs report ahead of the midterm elections on November 8th, but for investors and the Fed itself, signs of weakness are welcome. In recent months, wages have risen quickly as companies struggle to fill vacancies, adding upward pressure to inflation. The challenge for the Fed is to bring about a softening in labor demand without provoking a sharp rise in unemployment. So far, it has managed that. But economic headwinds are mounting. Disunited Russia On Friday, Russia celebrates Unity Day, a national holiday commemorating Moscow's liberation from Polish invaders in 1612. President Vladimir Putin traditionally lays flowers at a statue in the Red Square, lionizing the rebellion's commanders. That symbolism also chimes with his rhetoric about Ukraine, where he casts the war as an unavoidable existential battle against the West. In truth, to invade Ukraine was a choice made by Mr. Putin. On Monday, he claimed that the partial mobilization of troops to Ukraine was complete, but recruitment could restart at his whim. Some Russians should be more concerned than others. Studies suggest that the conscription drive disproportionately affected poorer parts of the country. Many recruits also come from places with large ethnic minority populations, like Dagestan, a Muslim-majority republic in the south, and Buryatia, an ethnic Mongolian region in the east. Although Mr. Putin preaches national unity, not all Russians are treated equally. The Pope's Visit to Bahrain On Friday in Bahrain, Pope Francis will meet a group of Islamic leaders known as the Muslim Council of Elders. His four-day trip... The first papal visit to the country revolves around the Bahrain Forum for Dialogue, through which the island host hopes to promote interfaith cooperation as well as exhibit its own religious tolerance. Unlike some of its neighbors, Bahrain has been fairly open to non-Muslim worship. Its 80,000 Catholics, most of them migrant workers, have several churches. There are Hindu temples and a synagogue. The state is less tolerant with its own citizens. An oppressed Shia majority complain of discrimination by the Sunni monarchy. They are denied some government jobs, and their towns are neglected. Inequality led to a Shia uprising in 2011, which was crushed with help from other Gulf states. Prominent opposition figures are still in jail or exiled. They are calling on the Pope to use his visit to urge dialogue not just between religious leaders, but between Bahrainis. A Climate Clash for Sunak Britain's King Charles will host a hastily organized bash at Buckingham Palace on Friday. The reception is a warm up for COP27, the United Nations Climate Summit which begins in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt on Sunday. Alongside foreign dignitaries, such as America's climate envoy John Kerry, will be British politicians. That could be awkward. In her few weeks as prime minister, Liz Truss advised the new king, a stalwart climate campaigner, not to attend COP. Rishi Sunak, her successor, held this line. He also declined to go to Egypt himself only to change his mind after widespread criticism. This is embarrassing for Mr. Sunak. It exposes divergent priorities not only with the King, but also with Boris Johnson, another predecessor, who gladly accepted an invitation to COP, having hosted the previous summit. And it raises questions about whether Mr. Sunak will keep Mr. Johnson's ambitious climate promises. His appearance at COP27 will not alter the conversation, but his handling of the affair shows a poor understanding of public mood. Weird Al Yankovic's Irreplicable Success With his big sunglasses, mustache, and accordion, Alfred Yankovic often heard that he was weird. Thus, in 1979, When he recorded his first hit single, My Bologna, a parody of the Knacks' My Sharona, he used the nickname Weird Al. He has since sold over 12 million albums and won five Grammy Awards, including, in 2015, the Best Comedy Album for Mandatory Fun. Despite competition on social media, Mr. Yankovic is still the king of musical comedy. He recently played a sold-out show at Carnegie Hall in New York. On Friday, a biopic, Weird, the Al Yankovic Story, written by Mr. Yankovic and starring Daniel Ratcliffe, is released on Roku, a streaming service. Fittingly, the film has twisted the facts of his life to spoof the Hollywood genre. Yet Mr. Yankovic insists there are nuggets of truth, such as when his character says the key to happiness, is to be as weird as you want to be. Daily Quiz Our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home, city, and country by 1700 BST on Friday to quizespresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Friday. The Newton is the SI unit for what property? Thursday. Which film noir released in 1941 and starring Humphrey Bogart was based on a novel by Dashiell Hammett? The winners of last week's crossword. Thank you to everyone who took part in our new weekly crossword, published in the weekend edition of Espresso. The winners chosen at random from each continent were Asia, Chin Siu Lo, Singapore, North America, Sarah Kem, Carbondale, United States, Central and South America, Diego Romero, Buenos Aires, Argentina, Europe, Yulia Bulls, Cluj Napoca, Romania, Africa, Christine Ryder, Tunis, Tunisia, Oceania, James Kelly, Sydney, Australia. They all gave the correct answers of tuberculosis, tweets, China, and sector. Check back tomorrow for this week's crossword. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Chankutala Devi, who was born on this day in 1929. Without mathematics, there's nothing you can do. Everything around you is mathematics. Everything around you is numbers. That's The World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app.